HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Souther Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm uh, I'm finally not full of turkey anymore. How are you doing? You know, I didn't get to have turkey this year, which I lamented so much about last year not having turkey. And then somehow this year it didn't happen again. So <laughs> I'm envious of your lack of fullness from turkey, I guess. I don't know, man. I feel, well, I feel, I feel cheated for two years in a row. I mean, here's my thing about turkey is it's like, it's a, it's, it's not a particularly amazing animal protein. As far as the world of animal proteins go, it's fine. It's not a thing that I ever really seek out unless it's the fourth Thursday of November. But, you know, it's like, I, I feel like it's one of those things where if we all sort of missed it on one day, you know, it's like, oh, all one Thanksgiving, it's like, oh, dang, no turkeys came through this year. Sorry, maybe try ham. I wonder if all of us would be like, you know, this is just better. And then it would just sort of like seamlessly move into that the year afterwards. I'm not sure. Right. right. Uh, my Thanksgiving plans uh, got canceled about a week before Thanksgiving this year. And we, I was scrambling with uh, all kinds of other commitments at work and just never planned something else. So Natalie and I just stayed at home and made a big seafood feast and then went to a movie. Uh, so pretty quiet. Yeah. Sounds delightful, man. Yeah. I um, I was out in central PA with my sister at the uh, the horse veterinarian. And at one point I asked her, uh, hey, like, do you have a turkey baster lying around? She's like, no, but I got a bunch of horse syringes out in my truck. So uh, that's how, what we used to base the turkey, you know? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, cleaned and sanitized in advance, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got I got them fresh out of the pack, clean and sanitized. I don't know what happened after that. If, like, you know, That is the best thing I've ever heard, I think. <laughs> and uh, there are there are photos on Instagram, too. We got we got some good ones of me very seriously applying uh 150 milliliters of turkey juice to the top of the turkey as it's cooking. Uh, incredible. I think uh, I think your stories about her are incredible, especially uh, what's the dog's name? Her little puppy that can smell gluten. Harold. Yeah, the gluten sniffing service dog. We took him on. <laughs> we took him on a last minute desperation run to the the last grocery store in town, like half an hour before it closed, because you know we're all just sitting around watching the American Kennel Club show. Then someone mentions like, oh, yeah, we got to go to the store and get like, you know, 
sweet potatoes, lemons, green beans, stuffing, <laughs> cranberry sauce. I was like, Jesus Christ. I was like, I just, you know, I just, I just work here, man. But like, yeah, this isn't last minute. This is the whole menu. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, he was, a, he was a champion sniffed and passed everything that we, that we ate. I actually was gluten-free for like three whole days and didn't really miss it too much, to be honest with you. Gluten-free technology has uh, really come a long way even in the past like five years. Yeah, I don't think it's that hard to miss. I think what's the problem for the folks who have who suffer, uh, your sister obviously, is that it's just in so very many things. Uh, so it's pretty amazing that she has a dog who can go with her everywhere and smell. And what what does he do? He he, what does he do when there's gluten? He grabs it and runs away. What's what's the, what's the protocol? <laughs> so he so he uh, he has what's known as a, he doesn't have what's known as a standing alert, which is what you know your your bomb dogs at the airport have, where like if they smell, I don't know a bomb, they'll like alert to it. But like, as you mentioned, there's so much gluten in the world that if that was the way it was, he'd just be like freaking out all the time. So she has like a special command where she'll like hold up a a piece of food, hold it up to him and say, check it. And he sniffs it and tests it. And then if it has gluten in it, he spins around in a little circle. And if it's good to go, he backs up and sits down. (laughs) Adorable. Yeah. It's awesome. Uh, What will they think of next? (laughs) Uh, well, Thanksgiving was uh, pretty quiet for me, but next week is going to be pretty fun. I'm going up to Rhinebeck, New York. It's going to be the furthest I've been away from my home in uh, well in the pandemic, uh, and and even a little bit longer. I think uh, January was the last trip I took before March, when everything shut down. Um, going up to Rhinebeck to a, a bar called Bia, and we're going to do sort of an industry night up there. Uh, starting at eight o'clock. But also, I'm going to be up there on Wednesday, so I'm going to do the show. I know we do the show remotely all the time. But I feel like it's going to be interesting to do a remote episode from somewhere not not my own basement. <laughs> it's going to be extra remote. Yeah, you're you're gonna you're gonna be playing my part next week. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to be in Rhinebeck, uh, New York, where I've never been. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's that far away on the map, though. Uh, and we're going to be hanging out with some cool industry folks, serving drinks. Uh, it's a bar. B has a pretty cool bar up there, and they're not even open on Wednesdays. Uh, I don't know if that's due to the pandemic or if that's their normal protocol, uh, but we're, they're opening up the bar and I'm going to record the show from there and then we're going to have some lunch and then we're going to do a bunch of cool cocktails. Uh, I'm going to be using Casa Dragonas and, you know, as you know, they've been on the show before. Uh, Sagamore Rye is going to be there along with Barking Irons and uh, Plantation. Uh, I think just the Plantation uh, rums are going to be there, but uh, and, and of course, Rockies. Uh, so all this has been put on by, by Eamon Rocky, our good friend who's been on the show as well. So, um, you know, look forward to hearing from from me on the speakeasy next week uh, um, from Rhinebeck, New York. So I'm pretty excited to, honestly, the, the most excitement I have about it is <clears throat> being more than three miles away from my front door. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, what is this? That's. You've I mean, done some I, traveling. You've been to Mexico. You, you've been to Mexico. You took off to go to um, Thanksgiving just even this past week. You've, you've popped around. You've went on your baseball tour all over the country. I've been nowhere, man. Nowhere. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it enjoy it is what I'll say. You know, it's like it it has this real. I I still remember like the first like you know time I like actually got on a plane to go somewhere else, not New York. I was like, oh my god, like this is you know it's it's this it's that that not it's not fear, but it's like a little bit of like apprehension of like can we still do this that we were talking about all last year? You know, like we we spent. So many, uh, so many of our conversations on this show veered into that realm of like when people go back into bars, like are we going to be 
like, are people going to want to? Are you going to want to be around people? Are we going to want to travel? Or is it going to feel weird and freaky? And that impulse that we have watching movies where characters are in crowded places and us being like, are you insane? Put a mask on, you know, right. is that going to take over? But um, I would say like, you know, that it, that it, it passes, ride it out, you know, be safe. Obviously my rule is like, you know, when in, when in Rome do as the Romans do, like when I was down in Mexico, everybody still wears their masks outdoors. So I did too, because, mm-hmm. you know, it didn't want to be a dick, but yeah, have have fun with it, man. Enjoy upstate New York. It's beautiful this time of year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm speaking excited. of which. I'm excited to go. Yeah, let's talk about upstate New York. What do you got? Yeah. Uh, oh, man, we got something real exciting today, actually. Uh, joining us in the studio, we have the 113th, uh, excuse me, Assemblywoman Carrie Warner from the 113th Assembly District of New York State. Carrie, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Hey, it's my pleasure. I'm uh, I'm excited to join you in uh and talk about cocktails. Yeah, we're we're excited to have you on and talk about cocktails. Did I get Indeed. did I get your title right? We don't really get like, you know, this is the first time we've had anyone that's like, you know, <laughs> yeah, officially titled. Uh, yeah. <laughs> on the show. You, you you absolutely did. And I have to tell you that that story about the the horse syringe as the baser, that was great. Um was, <laughs> I, I had to keep myself from laughing. I didn't want to intrude. <laughs> I, I, I will, I will never stop people from laughing and making me the center of attention. I, I will never, I will never fault anybody for that. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it was, it's never a dull moment when you have a, a horse veterinarian in the family. I'll say that. Well, I, from where I come from, we have a lot of horses and a lot of horse veterinarians. So I have to do a little poll and see who, see who else is using that technique. <laughs> I can't advocate it strongly enough. It is very accurate and precise. Um, but yeah, tell us, tell us a little bit about, about you, about your background and how you, uh, got into, into politics and where you are today. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm kind of a, this is a second career for me. Uh, I spent most of my career working in the high tech industry. Um, but I've been serving now, this is my seventh year and, uh, I'm in my fourth term now. So it's, uh, uh, I'm, I represent one of the prettiest parts of New York state. Um, and we are, uh, we're, uh, kind of a big agricultural area, although we also have the oldest thoroughbred racetrack in New York operating racetrack in New York state. Uh, we have a tremendous art scene. Um, so it's a, we also have the largest semiconductor chip plant in North America. So we're kind of a, an interesting mix of, uh, of old and new. Uh, but one of the, one of the things that I am really excited about in our area is the, just the evolution of the craft beverage industry um, from craft brews to uh, to distilled spirits. Uh, this is a, uh, it's a really growing sector for us. And, and it's fun to see the young people getting involved in this industry and, um, uh, and, and our, who are starting businesses here and, and growing their families. It's really created um, a fun economy. I mean, yeah, that's one thing that I love about about all of the traveling that I've been doing and that Souther is about to do is, you know, there's so it feels like you can't really drive through any town in the United States without encountering at least one brewery and one distillery. Um, And I remember, you know, there's there's when I was coming up in craft beer, there was all this talk of like, oh yeah, the craft beer bubble is going to burst, et cetera. And, you know, it's like, it's going to, all these breweries are going to go under and, you know, I mean, sure. A lot of breweries don't make it. A lot of places fold, but I think it is really interesting to, like you said, you know, be able to 
find these small, unique spots that aren't trying to be, you know, have the same reach as like Budweiser and Miller. You know, it's people from a town that like that town that want to serve that town and that want to make a fun product for like them and their neighbors. And, you know, as we say of people who own bars on this show, you know, it's like you've bought yourself a job. Congratulations. (laughs) It's true. It's true. You know, I think that, um, I think a lot of the, the brewers that I talk to, the, the, uh, winemakers, the distillers, I know, I think they are, um, by and large, not, you know, they're interested in growing their business. They don't want to be, they don't want to be Budweiser. Um, but I think they'd like to be Sam Adams. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe not quite Sam Adams, but, you know, I think they'd like to be on that trajectory. And some of them clearly are, you know, I, I in, just in my geography, we have 13 uh, craft breweries uh, and every year it seems we get another one and I'm not seeing a lot of exits. So um you know, clearly it's a strong market and, uh, and, and many of them are having uh, success. Just the other day, I saw one of the first craft uh, breweries that got started. I happen to see they now have a distribution truck with their, with their logo and brand on it. Um, so clearly they are now distributing more broadly than just the, just the um, you know, some of the local outlets that they have. So yeah, what what do you to what do you attribute the the the, the number you said thirteen right around you? Uh, and again, you're just a, you're just north of Albany, is that correct? That's right. Yep. So what do you what's so attractive you think to the brewing community to come up there? You got a good hub for, for as you just said distribution. Is there a train that's bringing in grains? What, what do you got? So I think one is you know we got lovely clean water. Um, we do have uh, we do have grain growers. Uh, we uh, not it's you know the our hope with the farm brewery licenses that were that it would pull through a lot of ag, local agricultural products and we'd see a growth in 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 some of the ag uh, ag products that go into craft beverages and I don't think that's worked for a variety of reasons I don't think that's worked as well as we'd hoped but we do have we do have some malt producers um, we have some hop growers uh, but I think we also have you know, we've got, um, we've got a growing population here. So we're part of the, we're one of the few parts of New York state outside of the city that's actually growing in population. Um, and, uh, and that's because we have businesses like, uh, like the chip manufacturer I mentioned, uh, that are now have 3000 people working there. And these are, these are young people there. Um, you know, their, their preference is to consume local products and, um, and they like supporting the small businesses. So I think sure, that's... They're, yeah, they're young and they're thirsty and there's beer being made. So let's get to it, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. What, talk a little bit for our listener and even for me, for my edification, when you say farm brewery, I know that there are some uh, laws and some advantages in place for, for breweries and distilleries to use locally grown products. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So the the uh, the farm brewery, the, the uh, farm distillery licenses um, say that they... In order to qualify for those licenses, the the company must, or the farm, the the brewer or the distiller must use a percentage of locally sourced ingredients. And locally sourced is New York sourced from New York, and um, and they have to they have to provide documentation um, back to the state liquor authority uh, to demonstrate that they are meeting those targeted requirements and 
Um, I think it started at 30%, went to 60, and maybe I think at some point it goes to 90%. Um, so, and in return for that, uh, they could uh, they can have a tasting room, um, they can sell direct to consumers. Um, there are benefits that come from uh, from those licenses uniquely uh, as a you know sort of an exchange for buying local using local uh, ingredients. I love that. You know, I'm I'm a big believer in the sort of power of. I mean, I think we we all get wrapped up in like, you know, national politics because they're, you know, it's, 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 it's flashy. It's sexy. It's a soap opera. Like I get it. But like, I mean, there's so much good that can be done for, you know, the business and the planet and the consumer with, with laws that take place on, you know, that are, that make sense on a local level and are kind of targeted for like, Hey, this works for this community. So let's, you know, find, find a solution here. It doesn't have to be a zero sum game where everybody wins, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, when we talk about lowering our, the carbon footprint of, uh, of various products, you know, anytime you're shipping ingredients in from out of state, that's going to have a higher carbon footprint than if you picked it up from a neighboring farm. So I think that as part of our overall strategy to be more respectful of our environment and of our planet, uh, encouraging this use of local ingredients to manufacture products um, is a is a really powerful strategy to pursue. Yeah, I mean, I I say all the time, it's like I think that it, it it's so weird to me that people don't walk around all the time just having their heads explode over the notion that it costs less to get beef from the other side of the country than it does from you know a part of the same state that you live in most of the time. It's it's wild that we've set the system up like that and it's not good for the planet and it's not sustainable and it's not good for us, you know, and there needs to be, you know, sensible measured systems in place to like gradually dismantle that. And like you said, you know, it, it helps the environment and it helps local farmers. Right. You know, that, that head of lettuce that you're buying that was grown in Southern Arizona, you know, it was, it was grown with the, with the intent that, it's going to it's going to have to sit in a warehouse for a while and it's going to be shipped someplace so they you know they engineered that that varietal for those characteristics and what they took out of it was some of the nutritional value so when we buy local ingredients <laughs> and, off, and, off, and oftentimes the flavor right and the flavor exactly so when we buy local products it tastes better it's better for us and it has a lower carbon footprint um, so I, you know go local farms yeah absolutely. And, and, you know, speaking of, of local farms, one thing we really wanted to talk to you about on the show was, was local politics. Um, because, you know, as, as we reported, um, frequently over the summer, there was a, uh, a to-go law that was on the books in New York that was very, very popular with, I think it had about high seventies, low eighties approval among the public. If I'm remembering my statistics correctly, you know, don't, don't, don't don't at me for that, but uh, it it disappeared very very quickly. And one thing that we wanted to talk to you about is you know like like we were saying earlier with national politics, like they don't really affect your day to day life as much as local politics do. But there's also you know so much, so many. Everyone has a very loud, very expert opinion when something like that happens. 
you know, you and there were people who were like, oh, like it was the liquor lobby that did this or, oh, it was, you know, rich people with brownstones that didn't like the noise. And there was a lot of there was a lot of finger pointing, a lot of blaming and not a lot of, you know, measured discussion about it. So one reason we really wanted to have you on the show was we were hoping you could give us a little bit of a, an insight of what happened there and, you know, what our listeners can do if, if this is an issue that still rings true for them and they want to do something about it. I, I think it's a, it's a, it was that, that law, the to-go cocktail law, uh, which was put in place as an emergency measure uh, in the pandemic, um, was really a lifeline for uh, many restaurants uh, that uh, you could, you could get yeah, an entree. Mine included. <laughs> yeah. Get a, get an entree and a cocktail um, made, made a huge difference financially to, uh, to the, these restaurants, the restaurants and, and it, consumers liked it. You know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a bartender and I don't, I don't even play one on TV. Um, but you know, I do like a cocktail before dinner, so I'm not likely to make my own, but if I can, if I can order a margarita when I order enchiladas to be delivered, um, I'm happy. So I don't need more than one. I don't want to, I don't want to go to all that trouble. So I, I want to, I want to do that. Consumers like it. Um, and, and restaurants like it because there's margin in cocktails and in a thin margin business, that's important. So it, to me, it makes a lot of sense. The, the argument on the other side is we have this three-tier distribution system. It, it was put in place to, uh, to ensure that uh, there wasn't, there wasn't uh, uh, bad actors in the system, that everybody got, you know, everybody got their share of the, of the market and the to-go cocktails kind of uh, puts you know, puts a spike in the gear and we're worried that there's going to be unintended consequences uh, if that continues. So, you know, that was the argument, which is that, wait a minute, you've got local liquor stores and what's the, what's the impact on them? Will people stop buying bottles of liquor? Will they stop buying bottles of wine? Will they not buy a six pack of beer at the store um, if they can get it uh, as a to-go from a restaurant? Uh, me personally, like I said, I think I think the what was proposed was you buy one, you buy an entree, and for every entree you can get one cocktail of a specific size. It has to be in a sealed container. It has to be, you know, you have to be over twenty one. Obviously, if you if you want a if you want a glass of wine, you're going to get one glass of wine in a in a sealed container with a with each purchase of an entree. So, um, I felt like the 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 constraints were such that it really was mimicking the restaurant experience at home. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a substitute for, uh, for, for having a bottle of tequila in your house. If you tend to like to make a pitcher of margaritas, um, it was basically for the, the, uh, the cocktail before dinner, the glass of wine with dinner um, and somebody who doesn't necessarily uh, want to go to the effort to, uh, to make the cocktails themselves. 
Yeah, I can see all of that. Um, I think the part that that really sticks me is, um, you know, with the advent, uh, or rather not advent, the the increase in number of RTDs, ready-to-drink cocktails. So, you know, canned, uh, let's call it whatever, a Negroni, or even your your example, you know, bottled or canned margaritas that are now available in liquor stores seems to have turned and and became more and more available during the pandemic because those things were in such high demand. Um, It seems to have turned the tables in the other direction. Now you can literally walk into a liquor store and buy a single cocktail and walk out. You don't have to buy an entree at all. There are no entrees at the liquor store um, because the, especially here in the city, the the restrictions were relaxed uh, about drinking in public uh, long before the pandemic. Um, So theoretically I could walk into my local liquor store and buy a margarita and step out on the street and drink it and turn around and walk in and buy another and step out and drink it. So suddenly the liquor stores have become de facto bars. And I feel like that was their argument against us which I put in the grocery store argument. If I can order to-go food, this does not stop me from shopping at the grocery store. If I can order a to-go cocktail, this does not stop me from shopping at the liquor store. So it was very confusing and, and really heartbreaking to have it taken away. And, and I want to definitely dig in a little bit to talk about how it was taken away with 30 hours notice. Um, but but that's that's the next segment of this this bit, I think. I, yeah. I don't know. It's very I, upsetting you, for you me as a, a business great owner. Point about, oh, sorry. Sure. You make a great point about the the uh, single serve cocktails at liquor stores. I hadn't thought about that, uh, but that is a great, that is a great point. Like the lines are being blurred all over the place. So, you know, why is it that we were unwilling to blur the lines in favor of the restaurants? Well, yeah. And especially, you know, um, as you said, it's a lifeline. And I think that, you know, the decision to pull the option for having to go cocktails away in New York city and New York state in general, was short-sighted in that the example that I used when it happened, and I still use, is that, you know, we, we're we're still, frankly, treading water. And even when we do see the shore and or make it to the shore, that doesn't mean that the trauma is over. Frankly, that means that that's where the trauma begins. You know, uh, you know, once I re- reach shore, I still need nourishment. I still need, you know, hydration. I still need rest. Um, and I think that we weren't even quite to shore yet when this quote-unquote lifeline was taken away from us. And I think that a lot, I don't, I don't know how many people fully appreciate the, uh, the impact that the surcharges associated with paying back the unemployment uh, uh, funds are causing on all small businesses, but restaurants in particular. Um, this is uh, the, the increased cost that you're dealing with uh, because of the need to refill the coffers from an unemployment perspective um, is, a, is, a, is, a, is substantial. And you're still dealing with, uh, even though there are no occupancy restrictions anymore, you're dealing with consumer reluctance to come inside. Oh, oh, oh 100%, 100%. So, you know, so by no means is the, is the crisis over. You know, the emergency might be over, but the crisis isn't finished yet. And I think that it was, you know, I argued against it when this, when, when this happened, I said, we should continue this. This is not hurting anybody and it's providing a lot of help to restaurants um, and consumers like it. So uh, I, I'm sorry it happened this way. And I'm, I'm, you know, I hope we revisit it because I think it's, um, I think it's going to be important for the stability of restaurants across the state for the next couple of years, at least. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a great argument. You know, it's like it, 
it doesn't hurt anybody. It helps businesses that need our help right now. And the public likes it. It seems like a great argument. And, you know, I, I guess the next logical question is why didn't that argument win? Uh, I wish I had an answer for that. I really do. Yeah, it's difficult. It's a difficult pill for 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 those of us uh, in the field to swallow. And and again, uh, you know, quite disappointing and unexpected and jarring for our consumer uh, as well. To you know, now they come in and they say, "Oh, I, I can't do this thing that I used that I that I was able to do just a few weeks ago um, or months ago now." Um, but you know, when it first happened, people were quite confused and upset about it. Uh, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. We're going to come back and keep talking to Carrie Werner uh, about, uh, well, let's talk about the SLA when we come back, the State Liquor Authority. Everybody loves talking about that. Oh, yeah. Souther, we are officially past Thanksgiving, and you know what that means. Uh, what does it mean? Holiday party season, baby. Got oh, right. miracle pop-ups, office parties, house parties, you know, Christmas parties, Hanukkah parties, everything parties. Like, are you are you going any parties this year, man? I think you forget how this works, man. You're not in the business anymore. <laughs> I don't get to go to parties. I throw the parties. So I'm going to be throwing lots of parties uh, coming up. Uh, got, got, you know, corporate parties booking, got Christmas parties coming, got uh, New Year's is looming. I'm going to be throwing parties, pal. Keeping busy, huh? Of course. And you're not alone, man. I mean, every that's that's everybody out there. This is the time of year where everyone wants to, you know, come out to the bars, relax a little bit, maybe spend a little bit on that corporate credit card. And, you know, bartenders all over the world are probably gearing up for this. And there's a great place where they can go to get some resources on masterclasses of how to do just that. Yeah, where's that? It's DiageoBarAcademy.com, man. Of course it is. Our old friends at Diageo Bar Our Academy. Our old friends at Diageo Bar Academy. They're, they're, I mean, I don't want to say they're back in action. They never went anywhere. But they are there with brand new master classes for December, including all the information that you need to know as things get a little bit more hectic uh, gearing up for this holiday season. Oh, what yeah. Are, what are, I was what are some of the master classes you can I take? was looking at it on the website. Yeah, they've got uh, classes about how to create the ultimate seasonal menu, how to integrate low and no ABV cocktails, which are very important and highly trending right now, and especially mm-hmm. during the holidays. You don't want to get too lit up. You want to have a good time. Uh, they've got uh, using seasonal spices to warm up your winter menu. How to transform your outdoor dining space during the colder months is a, is, a, is one that we certainly need here in New York as, as, as that's happening, and I've, I've been transforming my outdoor space to make it more cozy and warm. A lot by Amoria Margo's coming out to literally starting tonight. Um, yeah, so that's a great resource to go to. Yeah, man. And as always, it costs absolutely nothing. Nothing. It is free. free. It is totally free. It's unbelievable that it's free. Uh, the, the amount of resources and the amount of effort that they put into them, you know, it's not just uh, slapped together. These things look polished and professional because they are polished and professional. So my uh, suggestion to everyone listening uh, is to register for upcoming events or watch these can't-miss masterclasses on demand at any time by visiting DiageoBarAcademy.com. Uh, whether you're a bartender, barbacker, manager, or if you're uh, completely new to the industry, DiageoBarAcademy.com has easy-to-access resources to help you learn new skills or stay in the loop with all the latest industry trends. And again, this is all free. Check it out at DiageoBarAcademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O BarAcademy.com. And we are back. You're listening to The Speakeasy here on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we have a very special guest, uh, Assemblywoman Carrie Warner from the 113th um, uh, Assembly District of the state of New York is talking to us about, we're talking about to-go cocktails, but we also want to talk about uh, a few other 
you know, in aspects of pandemic dining that have become, you know, sort of accidentally overnight became a part of our restaurant landscape. And now we're having to kind of look at them and say, okay, what do we, what do we make of this? Starting with uh, outdoor dining, you know, I mean, this, this seems like, you know, it could be, it, you know, people are, are split. A lot of people like it. A lot of people hate it. Um, it's one hate of it. these, <laughs> we, we know you hate it, Souther. When I said a lot of people hated it, everyone who li- a regular listener to the show knew who I was talking about. Uh, and I kind of like it, but that's the thing is like, you know, it is, it is a, it was an emergency measure that now we're sort of having to weigh the pros and cons of whether or not it becomes permanent. Uh, and my, my fear you know, I like it. I won't be crushed if it goes away. But my fear, the thing that I worry about is that we're going to have a repeat of what happened with to-go cocktails, where all of a sudden it's going to be like, okay, this is done. You have 36 hours to dismantle these semi-permanent structures that you've all built outside of your businesses, or you're going to be, you know, fined uh, $5,000. Here's a hammer of good luck. Uh, so I, I wanted to ask you, um, Assembly Member, what the sort of which way the winds are blowing in Albany, if you can give us a little preview of that and, you know, sort of what what a lot of the discussion is there about this particular aspect of pandemic dining. Well, I think like many things, it was, uh, you know, there was a, it was sort of a hot, it was a hot discussion for a while because I think very many people have different, different uh, points of view on this, just as you and Souther do. Uh, and And different... <laughs> Communities are are situated differently. So uh, I represent Saratoga Springs, which is a lovely Main Street community um, that has uh, uh, set up outdoor dining locations for many of its restaurants. You know, similarly, it's a life. It was a lifeline during the pandemic. It has helped uh, get provide added capacity to to build back the business. Um, and we just, uh, uh, but we take those outdoor dining spices up uh, in in the winter. So they have uh, uh, just this past week taken patios down, and uh, and and dining has moved 100% inside for the winter. And hopefully they'll be back again uh, come April when the weather gets warm again. Uh, so for us here, uh, having the ability to do outdoor dining um, as is is. Uh, is important and pleasurable and, and most of the restaurants and the consumers uh, enjoy it in the warmer weather. But I read recently about New York city and the, and the, and the increase in the rat population because of outdoor dining. Uh, And that's got to create a whole series of public health issues and public safety issues that we don't frankly experience, but are really relevant in the communities in New York city. So um, I think that for me, I think this is one of those situations where to the extent that the state has to uh, enable communities to adopt outdoor dining uh, by allowing the liquor license to be extended to cover outdoor spaces, um, I think it's a, I think that's a reasonable move for the state to make, to say, okay, we're just going to, you know, we're, if you have an outdoor dining space that is licensed by your municipality, your liquor license will apply to it. I think that's reasonable. But it it leaves the power to, to permit outdoor dining with the municipality. And that reflects the, the differences in communities that 
what what might be the way my community wants to manage it may be completely different than the way that uh, that Manhattan wants to do it, and maybe Brooklyn wants to do it even differently than that. Uh, perhaps uh, a small community in Western New York wants to do something different uh, than than any of the other ones. So I think leaving the the rules and regs to the local community gives uh, gives us the opportunity for those communities to be responsive to their to their situations, to their businesses, to their markets. Um, but the state can make sure that uh, if a if a community wants to do that, if a city wants to do that, that they have that they're not going to be impeded by state regulation around liquor licensing. Yeah, I, I love that. And first of all, I, I I do have to call bullshit on the whole rat problem thing because you know it's like I I think I think that there is a lot of um, perception coloring reality going on there. I, I the New York Times piece that came out about that had quoted a bunch of people. I think there was a a woman who said that she saw a rat for the first time in 15 years of living in uh, the West Village. And I just have to say, yeah. if you've lived in the West Village <laughs> for 15 years and you have seen one rat in a decade and a half, you are in the top 1% of 1% of rat avoidance for all of New York City. So I don't know. I think that they're, you know, obviously, and there's actually a great quote in the same article from a, a business owner who said, look, you know, it's not like it's not like I'm pro rat as a business. I'm also anti rat. I live here, too. I work here. I also don't want my neighborhoods covered in trash and vermin. So, you know, let's 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 work together because I'm not arguing for the rats here on this one. And I think that's and I think that's that goes to your point, uh, assembly member, is, you know, we want rules that work for the individual communities and maybe not sort of a, a one size an attempt at a one size fits all solution when you know we're talking about the entire state of New York when one size will not fit all right yeah i think the uh the, the rat issue is 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 more minimal than people are making it out to be we understand already that living in new york city we're we're what uh, Greg, I think we've talked about it in the past, like it's four or five, maybe even six to one human being uh, rats to human beings in New York City. Maybe we're seeing them more because we're being more aware of them right now, but they've, they've been here the whole time. Uh, I don't think that's an issue. And I think we keep them pretty clean uh, as most businesses go. Most businesses I know don't want to deal with that uh, interrupting service. Um, my issue with them is simple, is simpler than that. I, I simply think they're ugly. Um, you know, I, uh, have lived all over the country, 12 States since I left home, uh, at age 17. And there are places where it's beautiful. Miami does it really well, but Miami planned for it. You know, Miami has lots of space out in front of each business before the sidewalk so that they can have outdoor seating and outdoor dining. Whereas we didn't plan for that here in New York city. And so all of the outdoor seating is literally in the street. So suddenly the sidewalk is becomes a thoroughfare inside of your business. You know, people are walking down the sidewalk. That means they're kind of technically walking through my, my bar, my restaurant. I just think it's obtrusive and unattractive. And I, I those are the reasons that I don't like it. And I, you know, if we could, if we could go back and fix that in some way that I'd be more pro it, but I, I just don't like them. <laughs> I was going to stand by that. I don't like them. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit more about the SLA, Ooh, the foreboding, the big bad state Ooh. liquor authority and the licensing process that goes into that. And you, in your notes to us, said you wanted to talk about improving transparency and accountability within that body. What, um, what, talk a little bit about that. What, what, do you, what do you foresee possibly happening? And what do you, how do you see them <laughs> not letting it happen? So, you know, 
I think that people who listen to your podcast are probably more familiar than than most with the challenges of seeking uh, a license or renewed license from the state liquor authority. Uh, it's a black hole, and uh, and you you put your application in, you send your money in, and at some point far in the future, maybe you're going to get a license, um, and you are sitting there with a lease on a space, you're paying the rent on it because you can't even apply for a liquor license until you actually have control of the space you're going to host your business in. So their current estimate is 24 weeks. And that's assuming there's no deficiencies in your application. Um, So 24 weeks, six months, um, you're going to be paying rent and probably paying for some staff uh, on on this business while you wait for a liquor license that you need in order to open this business. Um, and then, you know, and then because restaurants and bars are not, um, you know, are not profitable on day one, you know, estimates are you've got another six months to a year before you actually become a profitable business. So that's an awful lot of startup cash that you need. And, and, and that six months of it is spent pending action by a state agency, I don't know, I just find that lack, that sort of lacks a responsiveness to the economic development of our communities um, that I, I don't, I think we can do much better. So um, I've got, I've got legislation that uh, was passed unanimously in the legislature. Uh, 213 people voted for it all across the state to require that the state liquor authority provide a data source on a public website that says, hey, Souther, you've applied for a license. Here's, we're estimating that this license is going to be delivered to you on the state. Oh, wait, something has happened. You have, something's changed. You had some deficiencies in your application. We're waiting on you to get some stuff, information back to us. The, that, 20, that 24 weeks is now 26 weeks, but at least you can plan on it. Or maybe there was a, a a rush of applications that came in. And so it's going to take a little longer than 24 weeks. It's going to take the 25 or 26 weeks. We're going to, we're going to tell you that the estimate has changed so that you can plan for it. So that if you need to go back to your banker and say, I'm so sorry, you know, I, I thought I was going to have enough cash to make it through the six months I have to wait for my liquor license, but now they're telling me it's going to be an extra month. I'm going to need, a, I'm going to need to extend my line of credit you as the business owner need to be able to do that just to be able to last the period of time it takes to get that application. And so requiring that the agency be transparent about how long these things are taking just to give you the information that you need to plan and that you need to maintain financial stability so that you actually can open your doors and be successful just strikes me as the right thing to do. So that's the legislation. It's now pending the governor's signature and uh, the agency's not the agency's not excited about this, um, and I'm hopeful that the governor is going to sign it because I think it would make a strong stand that says this is a government about transparency and accountability, and and about economic development, and we're not going to, you know, we're going to we're going to let you know how long things are going to take so that you can plan for it. I mean, I love this, and, and it sounds like a great step in the right direction. You know, I, I would point out that here in the city unlike maybe more rural areas, um, we have to deal with things that you just mentioned, maybe going six months up to a year 
of uh, no uh, income, no revenue generation um, before we can get open. Uh, and also, we deal with the sort of the opposite side of this, uh, I don't know, vice grip that we're being squeezed by, which is that generally, you know, we can only get a 10-year lease. So suddenly now we've got nine years to get in and and regain that profit and uh, or rather regain that, that outflow of uh, capital, uh, and and then hopefully get to a place of profitability before likely we're we're gone away anyway. So like I feel like that, that vice grip comes down on us from two different directions. And I would be curious if there would be a way, based on just what you what you were just saying, it came to my mind. You know, I recall when I was a young person, uh, you you get your your temporary permit before you get your actual driver's license. Would there be a way to pitch the idea of saying like, look, I've got a space, I've I've built it out, I'm ready to do business. Can I get a temporary license while you go over my information, just to say I can sell at least beer and wine until I get my full liquor license or something along those lines? To yes, to, you can to springboard can. to springboard that that generation of uh, of revenue. Yeah, you can under certain circumstances you can get a temporary beer and wine permit. Um, so yes, that is possible. Um, there are still there are still timeframes associated with with that as well. Um, so that is possible. Um, it isn't necessarily, um, you know, it's not going to be. That's not going to work for everybody. For for example, um, there's a, a taco and tequila restaurant that uh, uh, operates here in Saratoga Springs. It took 27 weeks for them to get their liquor license. But they're a taco and tequila restaurant. It's in the name. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> beer and wine wasn't going to do it. So um, that was, you know, I think there are, um, there's different circumstances uh, for everybody. And, and we have to be responsive to all those circumstances. And, you know, it, it's not just the, it's just not, not just restaurants in the city that have the six months to a year to open problem you know, that's happening in little towns as well. And in, and in many of our small villages and towns, restaurants are economic development. So that is like, that's the business that brings people into town is that there's a restaurant there. And, um, and it, and when those restaurants, when, when it's, there's such a high hurdle to open the restaurant, it, it becomes a it becomes something that people aren't really interested in doing. So, yeah, I agree with that. I think that the hurdle becomes so high often that what you see happening is in large and small towns is that the only businesses that can withstand that sort of weight and put out that sort of uh, financial outlay up front are are you know the larger you know sort of big box chain kind of restaurants and things like that, which then. Certainly, they have their place in the pantheon. I don't have any fault with them, but then they sort of maybe tear away at the character of of the of the town, maybe, or also they funnel their revenues off to their corporate office in another town or even another state, and that you know takes away. I just see that these hurdles are sometimes so high that the you know the quote unquote little guy like me um, might get discouraged. You know, uh, absolutely, and 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 it takes it introduces so much risk into. Uh, what is already a risky business that, uh, you know, you wonder what, how the people who finance these businesses, so the banks, what are they, how do they look at it? You know, do they, do they create a, uh, do they have higher underwriting standards because they know how long it's going to take for that business to open and how much oh, cash they're going to You know, need? they do. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, and how, and, and is that, you know, so the, the ripple effect of this, is significant 
And, and we should be, you know, as a state, we're, we should be committed to making it easier to do business in New York State. We shouldn't be satisfied with the, you know, the, the reputation that it's, it's just way too, way too difficult to do business in New York. We shouldn't be satisfied with that. Um, we should be doing what we need to do to try and make it easier to do business in New York. And, and one easy way to do that is to just give people information. How long is it going to take? I'm not telling you to shorten the time frame. I'm not telling you to speed things up. I'm just saying, tell me how long it's going to take to get my license so that I can plan. That feels reasonable to me. I mean, this would be an incredible tool to have. You know, uh, I've opened many places in in uh, in my career, and to be able to at least have a, a you know an estimated timeline. You know, it's like when you go to let's let's use restaurants as the example here. You go to a restaurant and they say, "Well, we don't have a table for you now, but we'll have one for you uh, in twenty minutes." Okay, they give me a timeline, or they say, we, "We'll have a table for you tonight." You know, uh, at least if they give me that 20 minutes, I can have something to work with. You know, I can make make plans or decide on what's going on. So I think this is a great first step, I think, uh, uh, in, in getting things done a little bit quicker. Well, thank you. And, and I would just uh, encourage you and your listeners that if this is if this or any of the topics we've talked about is one that they want to get involved in um, to reach out to the governor's office, uh, send a letter, make a phone call. Um, and and urge her to uh, to take this step to make her government more responsive uh, to the to the needs of the businesses and consumers that make up New York State. Yeah, and I mean one one thing that one axe that I ground a lot last year um, during the height of of all the you know awfulness that was 2020 was that you know there was a big very public bailout of a lot of major airlines, which make up, I think, 5% of the GDP in this country. And restaurants make up 4%. If I'm remembering my stats right, they actually employ more people than uh, yep. the airline industry does. And yet there is still, still a fight to include restaurants in sort of ongoing relief packages that are that are making their way through Congress. And you know, a part of that is the fact that, you know, you can probably, if I gave you enough time, you could name all of the major airlines that benefited from this. But there are, you know, I think half a million independent restaurants in the United States, and that makes it harder to lobby for. And so it really does depend on people like you and our listeners reaching out to the governor's office to advocate for these these places that they like. And we talked earlier about maybe revisiting that to-go cocktail program that that got pulled away this summer. Uh, I would like to revisit our revisiting of that if our listeners want to get involved in in that fight, if this is something they care passionately enough about to, you know, or even feel semi-passionate enough to to make a quick phone call in the morning, how how can they get involved in this in this fight to bring these back? I I think it's important to be a positive advocate for the things that matter to you, that matter to your business, that matter to your community. And so uh, I would go absolutely encourage everybody to uh, learn the phone number and the email address for their uh, local assembly member, for their local state senator, uh, and for the governor's office, and 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 take that step. It's it it 
doesn't have to be uh, uh, time consuming. Sit down at your uh, at your email and type up a quick note, uh, make a quick phone call. Um, I know it can be kind of scary to make that phone call because you think, I don't want anybody arguing with me. I'm, you know, I don't want to have to defend my point of view. And I would just assure you that um, the experience that you're going to have if you if you make that phone call, no one's going to argue with you. Nobody's going to ask you to defend your point of view. Uh, but they're going to make note of the fact that you took the time out of your day uh, to call and, and express your opinion and uh, and to urge the, the assembly member or the senator um, to take an action on your behalf. Um, so it's a powerful thing, the individual voice in our democracy. And um, I think I, I just want to encourage everybody to, uh, to, to do a little bit of research, get those phone numbers, get those email addresses, um, and use them for things that matter to you. I think that's I think that's great advice, and I appreciate you giving it so candidly. I would like to just ask on a personal level, the other side of that phone call is you picking it up, right? How do you feel when you get those calls? or, or Do you feel good about them? I absolutely do. And in fact, one of my staff people, um, a part of her job is to is to make note of of who has called and what their point of view is, recorded in our database, and and every couple of weeks, uh, run a report for me to just tell me who's called, what is what's what are the trending issues, what do what do people want me to uh, want me to take action on? Um, so I take it really seriously, and um, and I, and on some level, I take it I take those personal phone calls, those personal emails, um, a lot more seriously than the the organized advocacy. So, you know, you get those emails in your inbox that say, you know, you open it up and it says, click here to send an email to your legislator. Um, those are form letters that we get. And while, while it does help me to understand what, what topics are important to people, um, when somebody has taken the moment out of their day um, to write me a personal note, to tell me something that's important to them, or to make a phone call to the office, um, it's a, it's a, it tells me how it tells me a sense of of how important it is to them because they they took this action on their own. Um, so I take it very seriously. That that's awesome. That's great advice, and I thank you for being so candid about that. Uh, and I think that that's what most of our listeners are into anyway. We're we're uh, you know largely a group of bar enthusiasts and bartenders, and in some cases bar owners. And our entire business revolves around the you know the intimacy and closeness of coming into contact with people. So I think that's, uh, you know, a great call to action for our ilk. Fantastic. I look forward to uh, phone calls from lots of uh, bar owners and bartenders. Yeah. <laughs> Don't doubt it. Um, Some of them well, might thank- come in at four in the morning. Just be prepared. That's yeah. okay. <laughs> That's what voicemail is for. That's when they're getting off work. (laughs) Uh, Well, thanks so much for your time. Really great having you on, uh, Assemblywoman uh, Carrie Warner. And and really, I think we've gained a lot of uh, intel and information. I certainly got edified quite a bit today. Uh, And we're going to call our... Our, uh, we're going to call our constituency into action and get them to call uh, uh, Kathy uh, uh, Hochul up there uh, and, and, and try and move the needle into the directions that we want it to get moved in. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for inviting me uh, to join you today. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, thank you. It was our pleasure. And, uh, and, and actually, should anyone want to uh, get in touch with you and drop you a line, is there a, a best way to reach you? Absolutely. So my email address is uh, Warder C, that's W-O-E-R-N as in Nancy, E-R-C at nyassembly.gov. 
Fantastic. Awesome. We'll get we'll, that in the we'll, 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 we'll drop that, that, that we'll drop that in the show notes. Yeah, exactly. So you don't have to don't don't grab a pen just yet. You can you can just scroll down on your podcatcher and find it. Awesome. Amazing. Uh, well, assembly member, thank you so, so much for joining us. And that is going to do it for us today at the speakeasy. Uh, if you are interested in supporting the network, Souther, there is a, uh, there is a way that they can do that right now. Isn't there? There's a couple, you know, uh, it was my birthday last week and each year on my birthday, I use it as a fundraiser for the network because we're a nonprofit. Um, so if you go to, uh, my, uh, channels, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, you'll see that I've posted everywhere that I'm raising money for Heritage Radio Network. But also you can always go to heritageradionetwork.org um, and click on the beating heart uh, to support this this and all the other shows on the network. Uh, and, you know, this is our fundraising time of year about to begin, top of December. Uh, we got the gala coming up, which uh, this year will be um, uh, semi uh, semi semi in person and semi online you know last year it was totally online because of the pandemic uh, but we got a lot of uh, cool things uh, that we're doing a silent auction uh, to raise money for the network so check out all those avenues to get some funding into our lovely little nonprofit we've been around for 11 years uh, and it's uh, due to support from listeners like you so thanks so much for your support and thanks for tuning in uh, and that's going to wrap us up for this week's episode of the Speakeasy. Tune in next week. Uh, we got plenty more to talk about before Christmas gets to us. Um, and uh, cheers, everybody. Thanks for joining. Cheers. So you don't shun the devil with your rock. The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com forward slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>